Hey guys, welcome to the C1 Church Podcast. I pray that this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you go after Jesus. If you'd like more information about C1 Church, please go to our website at c1.church. Enjoy the message and be blessed. We're jumping into a series today called This is Jesus. And um, for the next three weeks, we're going to look at who Jesus is. And we just ended a series called Jesus is Greater. And like, well, didn't that kind of talk about who Jesus is? Yes, but Jesus is Greater. I would go back and encourage you to listen to it. We are in it for 19 weeks, so I'm sure you could find a message out of it. But it talked about the superiority of Jesus over all things. That it was a walk through Hebrews. This is going to be looking at the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus on earth, and what he and the lessons that he taught. With that said, we have a bumper video for this series, so let's check it out. I'm going to step out the way. This is Jesus, born into poverty in an insignificant corner of a conquered nation. This is Jesus, a traveling preacher, a homeless outcast called crazy and possessed. This is Jesus. Another hopeless rebel, mocked and beaten, hung on a cross to die. This is Jesus. Another lifeless body, stuffed into a borrowed tomb, soon to be forgotten. Is this really Jesus? Wake up. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. This is Jesus, sent by the Father to be crushed for the sins of the world. This is Jesus, declaring to all he would be killed and then raised to life on the third day. This is Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. This is Jesus, a missing body from an empty tomb on a Sunday morning. This is Jesus, the image of invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the Lamb of God, the light of the world. This is Jesus, Savior, Lord, King, Alpha, Omega, Creator, Redeemer, friend to sinners, hope of nations, the Messiah. This is Jesus, the resurrection and the life for all who trust in him. Wake up, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. This is Jesus. Man, doesn't that get you stoked? This is Jesus. The wake up, O sleeper, was for you, Larry. I'm just, I'm joking. I'm joking. Wow, I'm, man, I, I, this message has been stirring in my heart for probably about a month and a half, and I didn't know what to do with it. Have you ever just read a section of scripture and it jumped out at you so hard? 
that you just your mind started racing. It was just six verses in 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6, and I read it, and it hit me so hard. And this was back in like beginning of February, and I've just been chewing on it, and I didn't know what to do. I'm like, well, is this going to be a stand? I, this will be a message, God, but I don't know where to put it. And so I've been thinking, I'm like, man, I, I want to put this in the Easter thing because uh, our, our series, and, and but I think it would launch really good, our series, because it's so applicable. And it's so, we, we, we're going to walk out of here challenged looking at who Jesus is today, but I didn't have a spot for it. And then the Lord maneuvered and changed some things, and here we are. And today we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6. Traditionally, when you launch into an Easter series, you start looking at the Gospels, right? You start opening and you kind of start looking at the end of like Matthew or the end of Luke, maybe the end of John. And you just start looking around the cross and the resurrection and you start building this narrative towards the cross and towards the resurrection. I mean, that, and, and we should. I don't think we should just do that at Easter time, though. I think that's one thing that we try to do year-round. We always point back to the cross. We always point back to the resurrection because we're the church. And that's the whole mission of the church is the cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We declare that to everyone all the time. So we highlight it year-round. But, but one thing I, I try to do every year when we, when we jump into like what, what, I would, what I would traditionally call traditional series, like around Christmas, what do churches do? Christmas series, right? They, they talk about Christmas. And we should, 100%. 100%. Like Christmas is the greatest sacrifice. The birth of Jesus is the greatest sacrifice this world has ever seen up to that point in history. Only to be trumped by Jesus again 33 years later when he died on the cross. Like when you think about what the birth of Jesus is, it's God Almighty sitting on a throne in heaven, reigning over all things through all time, and then instantly limiting himself, stepping into the form of a babe. Not even being born to significance, but being born in a feeding trough. And for the first time in God's existence, which was forever, we can't even get our mind around that, before time began, God was, which is oxymoron because before is a word based on time. We take... And God needed, we see God stepping in, and he needed for the first time. He needed to eat, he needed to sleep, and when he was a baby, he needed to poop. Like that, welcome, that's, that's your guys' life this year. Um, <laughs> eat, sleep, and poop. Um, but God needed, he needed warmth, he needed, like, for the first time in existence. It, it's mind-blowing, the life of Jesus. But in 1 John, this is so applicable. It's so mind-blowing because it begs a question. It highlights who Jesus is, and then the last verse, verse 6, begs a question. And that's the question we are going to explore today. And as we explore it, that's the application for our life. Every point is so applicable to our lives as we walk out. So let's just jump into it. It says, My dear children... 
I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. So I'm going to stop for a moment. John, the author here, is writing a short epistle. He has four of them. And then he also has a gospel. And John is Jesus' closest friend on earth. He was his closest friend. He was one of the three inner disciples. There was Peter, James, and John. Peter was like the leader amongst the apostles after Jesus ascended. But John was Jesus' closest friend. And he had such a transformation that when he was with Jesus in his ministry, he, Jesus gave him the nickname the Sons of Thunder because he wanted to destroy whole towns that would disrespect Jesus. The, he had such a temper problem, but by the time he writes this, and he also writes the book of Revelation, by the time he writes this, he's known as the Apostle of Love. And this whole book is a book, and I encourage you to go read it. First John is so good. I would, we could do weeks in it, but it's a whole book that's saying essentially this. If you sin, there's hope. Be repentant. And then he, but at the same time, if you refuse to be repentant, there's a very real truth awaiting you of eternity away from God. So he loops over and over in this book. He's like, there's hope if you mess up, but if you don't repent, there's no hope. But there's hope if you repent. But if you mess, if you don't repent, there's no hope. You know, like he keeps coming back. It's a, it's a whole loop, but it's such a beautiful book. And then this is one of those verses that we need to know. We need to know. It says, I am writing this to you that you will not sin. But how many of you guys, after you get, came to know Jesus, has ever sinned? Okay, half of you guys are sinning right now. Like... <laughs> So 100% of us, um, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Whew. Come on. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. We have no righteousness of our own, so when we come to know Jesus, whose righteousness do we get covered in? It's like he takes a coat of his righteousness and throws it over us. That's, that's, what it, that's what justification is. Let's keep going. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sin. Atones is a really churchy word. And, and some of us like, I think I know what it means because I've heard it enough. But atones means he completely paid in full the price for your sin. There is a cost. The wages of sin is death. Hence why Jesus died for sin, because all the sin of the world was put on him on the cross. So he had to die. So he atones, he paid in full for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. That's why we can go in confidence and preach the gospel and say, Jesus has already paid for your sin. But this is where, oh, does that mean everyone's saved? No. Imagine if we both went to a restaurant and I went and paid for your ticket, but you refused for that. It's already paid for, but you still have money on the table to cover your bill. That's what, it, that's what it looks like when you refuse salvation. You're trying to cover your own bill, but it's already taken care of, but it doesn't apply to you. You still had to pay the cost. 
Or you could just receive the fact that I covered your bill and walk out of the restaurant happy-go-lucky. With that said, if you catch me in a restaurant, I'm not saying I'm going to pay for your bill. I might. Actually, Amy's the one saying, absolutely not. I'm like, I, I'm, I shouldn't have said that. I'm, I'm. Stop it. Stop it. Guys, tonight at 5 o'clock, there will be axe throwing. I will come with one in my back. So, like, <laughs> stop it. we got to keep going. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. Jesus, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you obey my commands. And then we can have confidence. I've talked to people that they're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I'm like, there's a confidence that we can have when we accept Jesus. We look different, not maybe not physically, but like our outlook on life, there, there's, there's, there's hope in us. Like there's a difference in our being when we are in Jesus. And not just that, the proof is we want to obey his commands. We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. Like we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love God, the great commandment. Like we want to do those things. Let's keep going. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. This is pretty straightforward. It's heavy, but if you claim you know God, you're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you're not, but, but you're not living a life that looks like Jesus, then you're not a Christian. You can... Dude, I could, I could say I'm a dog all day long. doesn't make me a dog. The proof is obeying Jesus. When we truly love him, we obey him. But those who obey God's word truly show that they completely love him. That is how we know we are living in him. And now, the, the, here, here's the verse I want us to see. Verse 6. Those who say they live in God, let's say it together, should live their lives as Jesus did. So he's telling us, if you love Jesus, you obey him. That's proof that you are in him. And then he's saying, like, Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. He is our hope. He's our advocate. He's identifying him. But then he ends with this. This is what hit me so hard. And I don't know how many times I've read this in my life. But those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So what question pops out at you from here? There's a question that hit me so hard that's so applicable How did Jesus live? If we want to walk out of here, I imagine all of us would say, well, I want to live my life in God. Well, he tells us how to do it. Should live their lives as Jesus did. So now we have to look at the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? How did he live his life? So every thought I'm going to give you today is applicable to your life. If you're wondering what the application is, well, it's the thought I'm going to give you. That's the application. Because this is literally how Jesus lived his life. 
So the, the first thought, I, like, I, I went through and I, I, pray, I was praying about this and I started thinking, okay, if I could pop out like four or five thoughts that would highlight how Jesus lived. As I'm praying, these are the things that came to me, and, 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 and then I'm gonna, what we're going to do from this point forward is I'm going to read Scripture to reinforce these thoughts, okay? So we're going to build it up. And, and so the first thought we, we're going to look at is Jesus lived in complete surrender to the will of the Father. Jesus lived in complete surrender to the will of the Father. Believe it or not, Jesus came to earth not for relationship with us, but for our relationship with the Father. So the Holy Spirit, his function on earth is to convict the world of the sin of unbelief. So the Holy Spirit leads the sinner to Jesus. And when we accept Jesus, he leads us to the Father. The Father, for God so loved the world, he sent the Father wanted a restored relationship with humanity. And so it's all to get to the Father. But can, can, can we pray to Jesus? Absolutely. I think I praise Jesus all the time. I thank Jesus all the time. But even when Jesus told us to pray, though, what did he say? Our Father. He's like, when you pray, pray like this. We pray to the Father through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the theological and doctrinal way to pray. Like when I when I when I pray, I I, I gosh, I'll, I'll ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, give me discernment right now, because that's what it's part of His job. I was like, thank you, right? Uh, thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping me in this area. You know, he leads us away from sin. The Holy Spirit's the reason why we can live righteously on earth, because He's the the power of God at work in us. Jesus is our avenue to the Father. I, I kind of think of like a, I, I don't know, like a cell phone. Jesus is a cell phone, but the signal's the Holy Spirit, if that makes sense. So I want to look at two verses real quick. It's John chapter 5, and they're not on the screen. I'm, I'm actually going to challenge you guys to read them. I'm going to tell you which one. I'm going to read them to you real fast because... Um, there's a lot of scripture, not a lot, but um, John 5, 16 through 24, and then we're going to look at John 12, 49 through 50. So Jesus lived in complete surrender to the will of the Father. He's having a discussion right now in John chapter 5 with some religious leaders of his day, and they're coming at him with some hard accusations, and quite frankly, the Bible says they began harassing Jesus. Have you ever been harassed by someone? You're in good company. In fact, this week, we've, we advertised our Facebook um, logo, and we got harassed like, like trolls came out of the woodworks, calling us hypocritical, heathen, pagans, and all sorts of good stuff. And man, what do we do? Um, man, God, if you're watching, God loves you, and he wants a relationship with you. Um, uh, some of it was just Phil, but I'm just joking. I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. So right here in John chapter 5, so the Jewish leaders begin harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. So I want you to understand, Jesus never once broke a law of God. Not once. Never. He was the embodiment of the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. He broke their rules. 
man-made rules on top of God's law. He never broke the law of God. In fact, he was trying to show them how much freedom there was in the law as he lived life. They were so stringent that, that they, they, um, they had to wash their hands. They, they added rules on top of rules, like keep the Sabbath. Like the, 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 the commandment is don't forsake the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, what did they, how did they take that? We can't do a single thing. Well, like modern day Israel, on Sunday or on Saturday, Saturday is the Sabbath, if, if you go into a hotel, there's hotels in modern day Israel today that you walk in and it stops at every floor automatically and it's their Sabbath because they won't even press a button. That's, how, that's a rule they added like because that's working. It, it's crazy. And that's what man-made rules do. They, they think that they, you think they help you walk with God, but then they actually restrict your freedom. And so Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. But Jesus replied, my father is always working, so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does. The father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge, so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. So it's like if Jesus, if every word that flowed out of Jesus' mouth was truth, so when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that is a moment that when we read the Bible that we need to hone in on. Because he's saying, you need to listen really closely. I tell you the truth. truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins. But they have already passed from death into life. Come on. So Jesus is saying, I only do what the Father tells me to do, what I see the Father doing. And then John 12, he says, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. So what we see here is not only did Jesus submit his actions, I only do what the Father tells me to do, he submitted his tongue to the Father. Now that's crazy, because you can submit your actions without submitting your tongue. How many of you guys have ever been around teenagers? Right? Like, you tell a teenager to go do it, they might go do like, move that, that, that stool. Fine, I'll move it. You know, like, they're not submitting their tongue. They're submitting their actions. It's actually harder to submit your tongue to the Father because 
What, what, what is, he might say, go pray for that person. You might walk up to him, there's the action, but now I have to open my mouth. I have to submit my tongue. Jesus, Jesus lived in complete surrender to the will of the Father. So this begs a question. How did Jesus know the will of the Father? How did he know what to do and when to do it? How did he know what to say and when to say it? It's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Jesus was spirit-filled. He was 100% God, 100% man. But when he stepped into humanity, he laid his deity down. He didn't operate in his omnipotence. He didn't operate in his omniscience. He didn't operate in his omnipresence. The O three qualities of God. Omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. That means he's all-powerful. That means he's all-knowing. That means he's everywhere at once. He didn't operate in that while he was on earth. He was limited. He, he made himself the form of a slave, Philippians tells us. So how did he know this stuff? He listened to the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that allowed Jesus to cast out demons, to heal the sick, is in you and me. Like, how else could he say, greater things you will do than me? If he did one thing as God on earth, like in his own deity, he couldn't say that. He would be a liar. He didn't do one single action, even walk in a water. Peter did that. It was all by the power of the Holy Spirit. He submitted himself so much to the call on his life and to the, and to, um, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he completely trusted the Spirit. If you want to know the will of God for your life, listen to the Holy Spirit's leadership. The Holy Spirit only leads in the will of God. He, like, he, he only knows how to lead in the will of God. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says, when we speak in tongues, the Spirit speaks through us, and that what do we pray? We pray the divine will of God. The Holy Spirit can only pray the will of God. He can only lead in the will of God. So let's even get more practical here. How did he learn the ways of the Spirit? How did he learn to walk in step with the Spirit? Jesus got up early. Let's get practical. Jesus stayed up late. Not playing video games. Not, not, not watching news. Wasn't, he wasn't like, hey, I'm going to go get on social media or, or whatever. He got up early to spend time with the Father in prayer listening to the Spirit. There was one time he got up early and they're like, where's Jesus? And he, he came back to him. He said, hey, we need to go this town, this town, to this town. How did he know that? He got up early and in the prayer time, the Spirit said, you need to go to this town, this town, and this town. He listened. He spent time with the Father. After he, after he fed the, the multitudes, he went up on a mountain to pray. He spent time before he called the 12 apostles, he prayed all night. To know who to call. 
He spent time. If we want to walk, I, I almost guarantee you, if I, if I sit down with every one of you individually and said, do you want to live a life in complete surrender to the will of God? Do you want God's will for your life? I almost guarantee you 100% of you would say, absolutely, I want God's will for my life. Because God's will is good. It's, it, it, it's, it's amazing. It, God, God has plans to prosper. All that good stuff is part of God's will. But how do we walk in it? We listen to the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus did it. And he was our standard. He was our example of how to walk out a life following, Jesus, uh, following the Father. He showed us what relationship with the Father looks like. Like, biblically, in, in a family sense, Jesus is actually our older brother. Firstborn of all creation. He's a son of God, and what are you? Sons or daughters of God. He's Lord, but he's also our older brother. We're, we're sons, we're equal. We're co-heirs with Christ, the Bible says in Romans 8. Like, well... This is like, I don't know what to think about this. It's in the Bible. It's exactly your identity. You're co-heirs with Christ. And, and so there's this standard of like, Jesus is our example. Hear me out on this. If we turn whatever, whatever is distracting us for a time every day, and ask the Holy Spirit to direct us, he will. So if you get up and the first thing you do is turn on CNN or Fox or whatever, what if you held off on that for 20 minutes? Or got up 20 minutes earlier and said, Holy Spirit, direct me today. Let my life glorify you today. And just start spending time with him in his word and in prayer. No, I, what he might say is, don't turn on the news. <laughs> I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but what, 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 if, what if we were like, you know what, instead of staying up late to watch this movie, I'm just going to shut it off and go pray before I go to bed. I'm just saying, I promise you this, when, when you ask him to direct you, he will. And the Holy Spirit only directs in the will of God. So Jesus lived a life in full submission to the will of God. He only did what the Father told him to do, and he only said what the Father told him to say. And that's what we're called to do. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What does the branch do when it's, apart, when it's cut off from the vine? It dies. But when we stay connected, we stay connected and we, we when we stay walking with the spirit in fact Paul goes as far to say this in Galatians chapter 5 or chapter 6 he says when we walk in step with the spirit we don't gratify the desires of the flesh the will of God he doesn't want you to gratify your flesh he wants you to walk in step with the spirit so we we spend time with the spirit we pray we get into the word Jesus lived a life in complete surrender to the will of the Father by walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And, and listen, all, every, every thought from this point forward, it all hinges on Jesus listening to the Holy Spirit. His whole life was obedience to the Holy Spirit. And so the next, the next thoughts make way more sense when you think of it in terms of walking in step with the Holy Spirit. 
That's how we, that's how we live for Jesus. Peter, Peter says, everything you've get, been given for a holy life has been given to you through Jesus. Well, what did Jesus give us? The Holy Spirit. So the second thought I want to give you is, Jesus lived completely full of grace and truth and discerned when to dispense them. Some of us are really filled with grace or truth, but we have no discernment of when to dispense them. And so we're really good about telling people the truth. Really, really good. Husbands, if your wife asks you your opinion on any clothing and how it makes her look, this is a, that's a good moment for grace and truth. Dis- discern, like, man, it looks great. I love that on you. And you can honestly say that. I'm, I'm, get, I'm just trying to help practical living here. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This grace was the divine power that flows from the Holy Spirit, divine enablement. Jesus didn't need saving grace. He didn't need that because he never sinned. We need, we need the whole aspect of grace. We need um, divine favor. It, it, it's, it's unearned favor, unearned love, and divine enablement. We need all of that. Jesus needed the divine enablement to accomplish the, the mission. That's the cool thing about grace. What God's asked of you, he will empower you to do it through his grace, by his grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you did the same thing with Jesus, full of divine enablement to accomplish the task for which he came to earth, which was to save mankind from our own sin. He is full of this divine enablement to complete God's task. And he's full of truth. Ironically, he's not only the embodiment of love. God is love. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the embodiment of truth. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever given a lot of thought to this, but Jesus is the ultimate ethic. There is no truth apart from Jesus. Every truth that we know in our society is actually hinged upon the truth of God. So anything that we know that is good, like, hey, let's not murder, that's based in the Bible, which is God is word. It's Jesus, so he's the ultimate ethic. It gets sticky when we take things out of context of the Bible and we start saying, oh, this doesn't apply anymore, and then suddenly we don't have a foundation to stand on because the ultimate ethic is God. He is truth. And and, and this is a hard thing with truth because truth always exposes what's false. It doesn't even have to try. It doesn't have to dig because when people see truth, they just know, okay, this is just, I know this is truth. And, and what happens with lies is lies usually when they encounter truth because truth is so exposing. They double down. They even go more crazy. And you see that in our society today. 
When you see truth and you're like, oh, that's, the truth comes out. What, what does the opposing side of any argument do? They double down in their thing instead of saying, you instead of humbly saying, you're right, I was wrong. They won't do that ever because pride is like ingrained in human nature. Like it takes encountering God and walking in humility to say, you know what, you were right and I'm wrong. So Jesus, he was full of grace and truth and knew how to dispense them. He discerned when to dispense them. Jesus, there's this moment in Matthew 12. He shows up and casts out a demon. Okay? So Jesus walks into this area, being the embodiment of truth, full of truth and grace, and he casts out a demon. And, and what, what happened is, when he walked into the area, being full of truth and grace, the the demons just started manifesting because the lie that it was living, the, the it, it, truth just exposes false falsities. It just does. Jesus didn't even have to say anything. He didn't have to do anything. He walked in, demons started manifesting, cast it out because that demon couldn't stand who he was and the Holy Spirit in him. Then, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, it's so interesting. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they harass Jesus a lot. And we got to be careful that we, we don't cross that line of being like them. Because it's easy to do. They start accusing Jesus. Because guess what? They couldn't cast out demons. They weren't casting out any demons. They're seeing this man walk around healing the sick, casting out demons. And their, their power... And their lies are actually being exposed by his truth all the time. Like, for instance, what we just read about the Sabbath. They're like, you're breaking Sabbath rules. And Jesus is like, I didn't break the law. I'm breaking your rules. And he exposed them. And all these people are like, wait, we don't have to do that on the Sabbath? Are you joking? They start following Jesus because he's living out truth and is ruffling their feathers. It's getting under their skin. They're wanting to kill him. And they say, oh, he's casting out demons by the power of demons. He's casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub, as some translations say, by, by the power of devils. How, did the, how ridiculous does that sound, right? Does this stop for a moment? Jesus points out the... But that's what lies do. They double down. They double down and they retreat back into themselves and they sound even more ridiculous when you start defending them. Instead of saying, okay, this guy's sent from God. They, wouldn't, they would not recognize that truth. So they double down and try to start justifying their small little platform that is built on, that's the thing, when your platform's built not on truth, it will crumble. And then Jesus says something. He's like, what? Are you joking? He said a house divided against itself can't stand. He, he, he straight calls them out on how stupid they sound. Then he goes on to call them a brood of vipers. 
Like, you, you sneaky snakes. And then he turns around and says, you are whitewashed tombs. He's dispensing truth like a vending machine dispenses snacks. He's just handing it out for free. Actually, it's not free. Their stupidity paid the cost for it. But he's saying, well, what is a whitewashed tomb? A whitewashed tomb is something that looks pretty on the outside and dead on the inside. And that's what he called them. He's like, you're dead on the inside. You're so blind. And then he gives them a very strict warning. This is so sobering because he said, you can, you, you can come at me. You can come at the Father, but when you come at the Holy Spirit and blaspheme him, you can't be forgiven now or, or in the age to come. Truth and grace. He told them the truth. This is completely stupid. I'm exposing your, your lies. But here's the grace. You're walking a very fine line of blasphemy. And I'm giving you a warning so you don't cross it. Because he wanted them saved. He wanted a relationship with the religious leaders. He came for everyone. But when we blaspheme the Holy Spirit... And, and what does that look like? Because I've heard like so many different examples of what it is. I could tell you what it's not, pretending to speak in tongues and all that. It's not that. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you attribute the things of God to the work of the enemy. For instance, they're seeing, they're seeing the Son of God cast out demons and their first reaction was he's doing that he they're, they're so blind to who god is that they couldn't even see god in their presence god incarnate in their presence and they're saying he's doing that by the work of demons so they're attributing the work of the holy spirit through jesus to a demon that's blasphemy and they were so, and that, that's where we got to guard ourselves because we, we can do the same thing. We can be so blind to the things of God. God's ways are so much higher than our ways. And when something new happens or something like that we're not familiar with happens and like, or we didn't experience, we can almost be like, well, that, that seems a little demonic or like, I, I don't like that. Or it ruffles our preference rather than, than, it's one thing to ruffle our preference. It's another thing to come against the word of God. If it comes against the word of God, it's not from God. But your preference isn't the word of God. And Jesus, he dispenses grace and truth. And I, I've had these conversations. And, and if, I, I've talked with, uh, not like, like people in here, but I've talked to people in our church about Bible translations. Like, what's your favorite translation? I, I have a favorite, probably the NLT, but I read a lot. And, and this, this is how I've experienced this. Is I, 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 at my last church, when I first got there, I had, a, I, had a, uh, I had a board member tell me that the NIV was demonic. Um, and then I, ha, I, had, I had a family member even tell me a Bible translation was demonic. And, and what I, 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 I instantly like, I have a degree in theology. I studied this extensively. So like my natural instinct is to retreat into my degree and then to lay down 
my knowledge on them to show how stupid their argument is. But what I did, thank you, Holy Spirit, was just ask some questions. Like, and I referenced this section of Scripture. I said, hey, I think that's a very brash thing to say. And I think you need to watch yourself very carefully because I don't want you to cross a line that you can't come back from. And, and the reason why is there are so many good translations out there. And, if, and I've always held, the, I've always held the, the stance that if you find a translation that you can grow in your relationship with Jesus. Obviously, I wouldn't go buy a translation from the LDS or the Jehovah's Witness. Don't do that. They, they take whole, they, they rewrite everything. It's, it's bad. Don't do that. But, like, there's so many good translations. You, if you need a, a list of good translations, download the YouVersion Bible app and then look at the English translations. And if you want a hard copy, just go find one of those translations. They're going to be good. There's so many good translations out there. But, the, but I, I've had them say, well, this, this is demonic because they did this or did that. They didn't say that. I'm like, well... When you dig into it a little more, you, you discover that the early manuscripts didn't have that. But that's what I, what, I, what I told my family member was, if people can read this and get saved, it's a work of God. If people can read the message, transliteration, and come to know Jesus, that's not demonic. It's not. If people can read the NIV and come to know Jesus, it's not demonic. The enemy's not going to put out literature that's going to lead people to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? A house divided against itself doesn't stand. But like we can get so religious. Like, well, I just like the King James Version. I'm like, dude, if you need a... Good for you if you can grow in it. I just need a translator when I read the King James. I, like, I end up reading like four, four verses, and I'm like, all right, got to go read a sixth grade reading level. <laughs> That's probably why I like the New Living Translation. It's written at a sixth grade reading level, and I grew up in Arkansas, so <laughs> I mean, like, whoo. But that, that's what it looks like. And so we have to discern. Jesus lived a life full of grace and truth, and we need to discern when to dispense them. Because if we are too much truth, there's no grace, and we're too much grace, there's no truth. And there's no repentance with all grace. And then there's no hope with all truth. Jesus lived a life full of both. So we can't be afraid to have hard conversations, but when we have to have hard conversations, we do so in love. And, and, and we got to dis discern listening to the Holy Spirit how to have them. The, the, the next one, real quick. Jesus lived with overflowing compassion for those who recognize their spiritual brokenness. Oh, man. I just want this to sink in. Jesus lived with overflowing compassion for those who recognize their spiritual brokenness. He didn't have a lot of patience for people who thought they were righteous. Righteous means right standing with God. They thought they were good. But man, when people recognize, oh God, I need you, he's like, oh, yes. So in Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14, it says, Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. 
Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee or a religious leader, and the other was a despised tax collector. And tax collectors were below sinners to them because they betrayed their people. They hated tax collectors because they worked for the Romans. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector, because that tax collector walked in with them. I fast. He's bragging to God. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. So he pays his tithe. But the tax collector, this is what, stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified. Justified means righteous before God, just as if he never sinned. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen, you might be a wreck. Your life might be falling apart. You might feel like, I'm not even worthy to lift my eyes to heaven. You are the perfect candidate for God's grace and mercy. He has overflowing compassion for people who recognize how much they need him. Jesus overflows with compassion. What, what's so tempting, though, for us is when we are at that point in our life, we almost retreat into ourselves and we don't humble ourselves. We're like, oh, I'm just going to bare knuckle it and I'm just going to grind until I get better. You won't. Instead, Jesus, he says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and, and, you, and I will give you rest. And, and so many times Christians, they think that they're, if, they, if they're struggling they think that's a sign of weakness. But when you can, hear me on this, when you confess with your mouth, that's probably the strongest thing you can do as a follower of Jesus. When you confess your sins, when you humble yourself to the point, I'm going to confess what's going on in my life to someone, that's, that, that's how the strength in the kingdom looks. Strength in the world says, I got this by myself. I can bare knuckle it. I can stand. I can be strong. But that's not strength in the kingdom. Strength in the kingdom is saying, God, I need you. I need you. And you confess to one another. You fall. People who got things from Jesus were the ones that fell at his feet. People always want something out of his hand, but fall at his feet. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in due time. He overflows with compassion. In Mark 2, it says, But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call those who... Not, I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners... 
It's simple. <laughs> Jesus wants to help. He wants to help. Just like a doctor. He, a doctor wants to help you, but if you never go to the doctor for an issue, a doctor can't help. You have to humble yourself to the point of going to the doctor when you notice something. Hey, I, I've been noticing that I can't do this or my arm's not bending or whatever. You have to humble yourself. And this is the same as with, with Jesus. You have to humble yourself to go before Jesus saying, God, I'm a sinner. But he overflows with compassion. It's not weakness to recognize your spiritual brokenness and confess it to God in the kingdom of God, this is a path of strength. I'm going to say that again. It's not weakness to recognize your spiritual brokenness and confess it to God. In the kingdom of God, this is a path to strength. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I boast in my weakness. I boast about my weakness. He said, for when I'm weak, then I'm because it's backwards in the kingdom. No one can relate to the person who never sins. Because all of us are thinking, oh, that's the standard. I can't do that. And so we just put on a facade at church and around our Christian friends. And we act like we have it all together. And <laughs> we don't. But th that... We, we think, we think like, hey, that, that, that's how we're supposed to be. No. No, it's, I'm going to confess. I'm going to, like, man, I, guys, if you knew who I was before Jesus, <laughs> if you knew the struggles I had, and just this morning I was talking about my struggles. Man, like, when I was a teenager, I was addicted to porn so strong I almost committed suicide. And it wasn't until I confessed it that I discovered freedom. I confessed it. And then I discovered what God's strength looks like. I thought it was burying it under myself, into myself, and that's not strength in the kingdom. I boast in my weakness so God can be glorified. He set me free. I couldn't do it on my own. He did it. And he still, it's, it's, it's the, the process of the Christian walk is like, we, he set us free, he's setting us free, and he will set us free. That's the whole process. You are being set free. If you're still struggling, you're being set free. He set you free from the power of sin, you are being set free from the power of sin, and he will set you free from the power of sin. It's, it's the whole process of life. But that's, what it looks like, Jesus, he overflows. He lived with overwhelming compassion for those who are spiritually broken. So there's hope for all of us who recognize their spiritual brokenness, not just being spiritually broken. And that means we need to do the same. People who are struggling, instead of saying, oh, they're such a nuisance. No, we need to overflow with compassion. If Jesus overflowed with compassion, what are we supposed to do? Overflow with compassion for those who recognize their spiritual brokenness. Which leads us to our last thought. Jesus lived with a willingness to be inconvenienced. Because he recognized how Holy Spirit works. 
when you spend time with the Holy Spirit and you start recognizing his patterns and how he works, and like he, does, he does things the way he wants to do them. It's like, there's not like a set pattern, but you kind of start recognizing like, hey, you know what? This is a, this normally doesn't happen. You know, like I, I normally don't have this conversation with this person. Like the other day, I called my sister and 99.9% of the time, guess who answers the phone? My sister. Well, this time, one of my mom's good friends um, who just lost her husband um, about six months ago answered the phone. And I thought to myself, this doesn't happen. I'm supposed to pray with her. That went through my head. I said, so, so Miss Patsy, how can I pray with you? And she just started crying and said, you have no idea how much I need this. And it wasn't like, it, it was, it was, it was in, I needed to ask my sister a question. I think it was, it was about Thanksgiving or something like that. I was technically inconvenienced because my sister let someone else answer her phone. But when you recognize the, the, the patterns of the Holy Spirit, it, it doesn't become an inconvenience anymore. Jesus said this. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Are, here, here's, here's another question. Are we willing to let the Holy Spirit send a divine interruption? I would almost guarantee you, if I said, are you willing to let the Holy Spirit send a divine interruption? You would say yes. Because divine interruption, man, God might bless me. God might do, I mean, come on, you don't know what a divine interruption is. But if I ask the question, are you willing to let the Holy Spirit inconvenience you? That's a different question, but it's the same thing. Because the more we let the Holy Spirit inconvenience us and we start recognizing his patterns, inconveniences become divine interruptions. That's how Jesus lived. Almost every one of Jesus' miracles looked this way. Jesus' schedule changed because the Holy Spirit would be leading him, but, but it was when people were inconveniencing him he would he would be going to raise a little sick girl back to life and this woman with issue of blood touched the hem of his garment and he felt power leave him and, and she got healed and he stopped and he starts talking to her well he's talking to her the sick girl died i would say that's inconvenient because up to this point he hasn't raised the dead the father is probably like we gotta go we got to go, my little girl. And you're like, you're talking, you're taking time. He's like, whoa, who touched me? And the disciples are like, everyone's touching you. Like you're crowded and they're crushing you. And he's like, no, I got to find this person. And the dad's like, come on. Like, like I, I, awesome, a miracle, my little girl. And, and Jesus was inconvenienced because he was on the way to the little girl. And then because, but, but Jesus recognizing the patterns of the Holy Spirit is like, oh, okay, God's going to get more glory. I'm not just going to raise a little sick girl. I'm going to raise the dead. Inconvenienced. He's going to minister and preach to the, to the Gentiles in the Decapolis, which is a series of ten cities. And, and on the way, he gets off the boat, and a, and a guy filled with uh, 5,000 demons comes running up to him. He could be like, oh, I don't have time for you. 
I want to go preach the gospel, but you know he's recognizing the, the divine interruption or he's being inconvenienced by God. He cast out the demons. They, they kill, they, they go into pigs, 2,000 pigs drown. They ask Jesus to leave the region. So he doesn't even get to do what he wanted to do. But what does he do? He turns around and sends that guy out as the first missionary. Met Jesus for 20 minutes, becomes the first missionary, goes from 5,000 demons to saved. Becomes a missionary. What does that tell me? A couple things. Number one, you're qualified. None of you have ever had 5,000 demons in them. Share your story. That's all he was armed with. Hey, I was filled with demons. I met Jesus. He changed my life. Guess what? He went to the 10 cities. They all believed him. Because they remember this guy killing animals and breaking chains and living in tombs. But he was inconvenienced. That's not what he was going to do. Jesus is having lunch with his disciples, and the foreign mother keeps bothering him. Heal my daughter. Heal my daughter. He's like, no. The disciples are like, get out of here. We're Jews. You're a Gentile. Go. And then Jesus even says this. He's like, is it right to give food um, to a dog? He calls her a dog. And then she goes, Even the dogs get the scraps from the table. And it says Jesus recognized her faith. He said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And he healed her daughter. Inconvenienced. He was being annoyed. But he recognized, okay, this is a moment. He lived with the willingness to be inconvenienced. And I think the best example is Jesus is staying in a house. And a lot of people believe it's Simon Peter's house. And um, he's staying in a house and news spreads about Jesus and the house gets so crowded that not another person can fit in the house. And then the courtyard around the house gets so crowded that no is standing room smushing and they can't even get to Jesus. And, and he's preaching. He's preaching to this big crowd in and around this house. And these four guys, they have a friend that needs to be healed because they heard about Jesus and he's lame. And, and, and so they're like, we can't get through the crowd. It's so packed. What are they going to do? While he's preaching, they tear the roof off. That would be inconvenient. Like, it's just like making a point and all of a sudden that starts crumbling in and the guy is lowered through. They low, actually, he would be right in here. They lower him right at the feet of Jesus. So these guys are up on the roof measuring off. Okay, he's about 30 feet back. We got to make this hole just right. But he, they lower him in the middle of his preaching. If there's ever a person you don't interrupt preaching, it's the Son of God. And he interrupt, they interrupted. He was inconvenienced, but Jesus recognized the patterns of the Holy Spirit, saying, oh, this is how he's working. This is a moment. He was willing, and he stopped what he was doing. And what did he say? He said, your sins are forgiven. And, oh, man, not only did, like, that guy got a, a deal. The, the Pharisees were like, you can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. And he's like, exactly. And, and then, so they're like, they're ticked. The Pharisees are always ticked at Jesus. And then, and he knows their thoughts. Once again, the Holy Spirit's given him divine knowledge. He's given him, the, him a word of knowledge. And he looks at the Pharisees. He said, 
oh, who is this man who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And it says the Pharisees were blown away. Like, how does he know what we're thinking? And then he said, but I said that so that you can know that the Son of Man has both authority to forgive sins. And then he turns to the man and says, pick up your mat and walk. The guy gets up and walks. Divine interruption, divine. He lived with the willingness to be inconvenienced. The impossible and the improbable things you are praying for might just be on the other side of divine interruption, a.k.a. inconvenience. Some of us have been praying for things for a long, long time. When you start recognizing how the Holy Spirit works, be, you will be inconvenienced but you should also be expectant of a miracle. Every time Jesus was inconvenienced, a miracle followed. Every single time. Jesus lived with a willingness to be inconvenienced because he recognized how the Holy Spirit worked. Jesus lived in surrender to God's will. Jesus lived filled with grace and truth. Jesus lived overflowing with compassion. And he lived... a a willingness to be inconvenienced. All this flows out of walking in step with the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants a relationship with you, and he wants you to walk in step with the Spirit. If you're here today, and you never made Jesus Lord of your life, you never said, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross and you rose again. Come, come be Lord. I, I want to introduce you. If you're here today and you're like, man, like, I, I really do. I, I want to do what, what John says. I want to live in God, but I'm not living as Jesus did. Maybe, maybe you need to just take a moment and say, God, forgive me. Because I'm, I'm not full of compassion. I'm not surrendering to the will of the Father. I'm, I might be full of truth, but I'm not full of grace. Or I might be full of grace, but I have a hard time telling people the truth. Like, like when it's hard to have if, if that's you there's going to be a moment for you to repent this is a thing be, the, the, the true testimony of, of of a changed heart isn't tears cried at an altar it's a life lived outside these walls so the Holy Spirit's working on you about these things I want you to pray say God work in me a willingness to be inconvenienced Work in me compassion for, for people who, who are hurting and broken. Work in me a willingness to speak truth and love. Lord, work, work in me a willingness to walk in step with you, Holy Spirit. And maybe you are. Maybe, man, like this, this message is like, yeah, this is a good message, but I'm actually doing those things. Praise God. That's why I always like to live, end with a moment in worship because Worship Jesus for all his goodness.